Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place for you. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. What's up, my brother? How are you doing? I am doing great, man. I am so happy, so excited to be with you guys tonight. I've been getting ready for this all about two weeks now, so I'm, 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 I'm ready to go. Oh, my goodness. That's all right, man. You know, I'm so excited for you to be here, man. It's just been forever since, you know, I can't even count the years. I'm just going to say some a couple of decades, right? Yes, sir. We were on campus at Vanderbilt University doing our thing, man. And then all of a sudden, you know, we end up in the same place. And now we're here, man. I just think it's awesome. And you know, what I want to do is read your bio. And I typically don't read bios because I'm like, ah, bios. But your bio, for me, is so heartfelt. So I want to read it. Is that okay? Yes, sir. Go right ahead. All right. All right. So so, so, so people tonight, I want to I read you this man's bio. You know, he has a unique background. And as I read the bio, it's going to jump out to you. So as the oldest of five children growing up in inner city Detroit, Michigan, Attorney Jones learned early on how to defend and protect his siblings from the harsh outside world. It is this passion for defending others that sparked his interest in becoming an attorney. It is his mission to ensure that all of his clients understand that he will be on their side, especially when everyone else is against them. Attorney Jones is a graduate of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He came to North Carolina as a part of the Teach for America program in 1997, Mr. Jones taught fifth grade at Broswell Elementary School in Rocky Mount, North Carolina for three years. It was during this time as a classroom teacher that he began to see how he could combine his passion for protecting the rights of others and his love of the law. In August, 2000, he took the next step on the road to reaching his lifelong dream of becoming an attorney by attending North Carolina Central University School of Law. After receiving his law degree and being licensed to practice law in the state of North Carolina, Attorney Jones began working as an assistant public defender in Durham County. The four years he spent as public defender allowed him to see how people can become lost in the justice system and their lives ruined when they don't have passionate, professional, and experienced representation. In 2007, Attorney Jones left the public defender's office and started the law office of Kevin E. Jones, PLLC. When Attorney Jones established his law office in Durham, North Carolina, it was his goal to create a law firm where all clients are informed about their rights, guided through complex legal issues, and protected from those who abuse the justice system. Amen, my brother, amen. Let's shout out snaps up to Attorney Jones. Brother, what is up, man? I love that story, man. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's real. It's it's been a long, it's been a long road. And I'm still traveling it. Um still but I'm, traveling. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying it way. I feel like I'm I'm here, I'm fulfilling my purpose. Amen. So let's go ahead and get into it. So so I want to start at the very beginning, right? I love that story how you start your bio. Tell us about your life as an older brother and how it shaped you and how you represent your clients. Well, I really, I really took, took great or take great pride in being an older brother. Um, growing up in Detroit, my mother and father, you know, they, I would, 
we didn't know it at the time, but they were a part of what we call now the working poor. I mean, they both worked full-time jobs and we didn't, they, they made sure we didn't know it, but you know, we were struggling. Looking back on it, we were struggling. Um, and so with them working, I was left in the home to look after my brothers and sisters. And so I remember I had a key, a little key around my neck, a shoestring key around my neck. And I took pride because when they gave me that key, it was my responsibility to get home, open the door, get my brothers and sisters in the house, you know, start the start the dinner or, you know, get everybody starting on their homework. So I took great pride in that. And so from that, I, I learned the responsibility that we have for looking out for others. You know, it's not just about me. Um, and I think that is the biggest lesson that I learned that I've carried forward through my practice, that I have a duty and a responsibility to give back and, and not just focus on, on my selfish needs, but, you know, looking out for, for, for others that are coming behind me. And I remember my mother used to tell me all the time, your brothers and sisters, they're looking at you. They're looking at you. They're watching you. And I was like, at the time, it was like, oh, that's what you mean. And so I felt, I felt that, you know, I didn't want them looking at me and trying to do something that I was doing and get themselves in trouble or get themselves and hurt themselves or, or something to that effect. And so I took that as a responsibility as well, that, you know, it's my duty and my job as an older brother to be that role model, to, to be that person that could blaze the trail um, for them to follow. And I, again, that's something that I've taken into my practice um, as far as trying to be a leader in the community, trying to be a leader in my practice on the job and just trying to trying to do the right thing. You know, and I, I fall short like we all do, but it's the reality that, you know, it's the effort that you put into doing the right thing. And so all of that's important. And I try to pour all of that into my practice. Awesome. Awesome. You know, that right there is a quote. Your brothers and sisters are watching. Yes. Oh, man, you ain't got to be, you know, blood relative to, to preach that one. Think mm -hmm. about that one. Your brothers and sisters are watching. Oh, man, I love it. Let's just jump into something you do, because one of the things I love is that you are very, very involved in the community. And for anybody who's here for the first time, August is the month where you want to come back every week because it is community engagement month. Every single topic this month is going to be about community engagement. So let's talk about some of your community engagement, um, Kevin. Tell us about the legal aid program and how you work with them. So that my connection with legal aid started back when I was in law school. Uh, legal aid, when I was in law school, the reason I love Central is because they did a great job of training. They do a great job of training lawyers to get out into the community. One of the reasons that I chose North Carolina Central is that one of their goals that was stated in the mission was that they want to put lawyers back out into the community and that they can serve the underserved. And so one of the ways they do that is they have a strong clinical program. And that clinical program um, is, is where you, your law students, you haven't had a law degree, but you work with a lawyer as a supervisor and you actually represent clients. And a lot of the clients that we receive came from, from legal aid. Um, we help clients with, with divorces. We help clients with uh, looking, drafting demand letters. We, we help clients um, with child custody issues. And so that was my, that's where all of our cases came through the legal aid program. And legal aid is the name of the, um, of the organization here in North Carolina, but other cities across the, across the country, across the nation have what I would call legal aid programs. There are programs where they offer legal services for, for individuals who don't necessarily have the money to pay for their own lawyer. Um, and that's different from the public defender's office. The public defender's office, they handle criminal matters. Legal aid typically deals with issues of, in a civil, civil nature, you know, whether it be family law, landlord, tenant issues, and things of that nature. And so I still, that's where I started the work with, with legal aid. When I transitioned out into uh, private practice, I didn't have that direct connection with legal aid. But I also, uh, while in my practice, I end up facing legal aid lawyers in court. And so I, I always have that connection with them from, from that standpoint as well. I think they do a, do a great job of, of, of representing the, the under, underrepresented. 
Awesome, awesome. You know, I always wondered how that worked because I had was definitely familiar with the legal aid organization in North Carolina where you practice, where you're licensed to practice. And I don't know if it's in other ones, but I think it may be in other cities. So I think it's really awesome that even though you were introduced while you were studying as a student, but you continue to have connections with legal aid even after it. So mm -hmm. let's talk about another one of your community engagements, the Day-to-Day -Day Dads program. Tell us about that program and how you work with them. The Day-to-Day -Day Dads program is, is a program that's specifically geared toward working with fathers who to build better relationships and connections with their children. Um, the program was started and ran by uh, Mr. Eric Owens. Um, he reached out to me um, by seeing or hearing about my work um, with, with fathers in my private practice and asked if I would come and do a, pres do a presentation. Um, and I just was so uh, uh, passionate about what they were doing. Um, they offer coaching for dads. They offer um, job search and education, transportation assistance, um, support groups. Um, and they just really have, they have like a, what they call a 24 seven dad curriculum where it's not just about being a father every other weekend when you get your time, but it's about being a father 24 seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that is the curriculum that they that the model that they're building. And so they've, they've asked me to be a part of that. And I'm, I'm willing to come in and offer my assistance. Um, just because in my practice, I see that so, so often, you know, fathers don't have the knowledge that that's truly necessary to, to establish and build those connections. It's not like they don't want to, they want to and they have a desire to, but for whatever reason, they haven't been able to make that connection. And I think that's a part, that's something that we have, that's a responsibility that we have as fathers, as men, to reach out to help our brothers when, when we see that there's a disconnect. We need to be, be the one to help, to help bridge that gap uh, for those who, who are in need. And so I, that's a program that I, I feel they, they have a, a strong mission. Um, I think they're doing great work. I wanna to continue to do what I can to support their mission. So it's day-to-day -day dads um, and I can, get that information out for everyone. Yeah, actually, Tamika is going to grab it for us. She's really good at it. Tamika, if you don't mind grabbing that, it's day-to-day um, -day dads, day-to-day -day dads, and grabbing that and putting it in the chat, because that's definitely a great resource for our people there in North Carolina. So what I'm going to do is step into um, the main reason we're here, things dads need to know. And um, before I do, I just want to kind of read this disclaimer. This podcast is information is considered is general legal information. It is not intended to be specific legal advice and no lawyer client relationship is created. So attorney Jones, let's talk about ways parents, co-parents can choose the needs of their children first. And let's kind of start with healthy communication, right? Tell me this. You often say no one feels the way you do about the other parent. Break that down for us. Why is that so important when it comes to child custody? And um, for, and I, the way we started this talk, you know, when you first brought the idea to me, I started thinking immediately about all the clients that I've had over the past 18 years or so. Um, and one of the, I would always, the client sits down with me and they're telling me their story. And I'm like, man, they should have been doing this. If they would have done this or done that, my job would be that much easier. And so that's the framework that I started processing this talk. It's thinking about what would I like my, my clients to know before they got into the situation that they're in. And one of the things that really stood out for me was this concept that no one feels the way you feel about the other spouse. No one feels that way. And it's like, what do you mean? Nobody hates your the mother of your child the way you do. Nobody loves the mother of your child the way you like those feelings and emotions are are yours. And so 
if you take those emotions and you try to bring them into a courtroom setting, it's not going to work. Well, even before you get to the courtroom, you bring that to your lawyer and you're trying to tell, get your lawyer angry and upset about the other, other party, party. It's just, it just doesn't work. And so you have to realize that the anger and the hurt feelings that came from that relationship, that, that those hurt, anger and hurt feelings cannot be, cannot be the driving force behind you seeking custody of your child. You're like, well, that's not, it happens. Some clients come and sit in my office and I can tell from, from the first few minutes of talking to them that they want to get custody of the other of the child to hurt the other parent. And that comes from a feeling of all that anger and animosity. Now, don't get me wrong. There have been some situations where the other parent has done some despicable things, has done some bad things. But you really have to find a way to process those emotions and feelings outside of the context of a custody um, custody uh, dispute. Because if you don't, you bring that stuff to the table when you go to see your lawyer, you're gonna end up spending a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time and you still may not get the result that you're looking for. Because judges are very seasoned and they can pick up on when you're really trying, your, your, your goal is not really about the child. Your goal is trying to hurt the other parent. Judges can see right through. And let me get, let you in on the secret. Some lawyers can see right through it. Well, I say all the lawyers can see right through it too. But all, of, all lawyers are not, um, they don't have the same standard. They'll, they'll take your emotion and take your money. They're like, oh, yeah, she should have never did that. Oh, we're going to do this and we're going to file this motion. And they they just feeding into your feelings so they can get, get the money out of you. And they know good and well that what you're asking for is not realistic. But they're feeding off your emotion so they can get that money. So that's why I say you have to figure out a way to deal with the emotion, the hurt, the anger. While all of that may be valid. You have to find a way to process it outside of this custody uh, dispute. Um, and sometimes, and I'll just put it bluntly, sometimes we're in this era of mental health and, and making sure that we deal with, with our issues and stressors. Uh, we see a lot of our athletes now are, are taking time off to deal with their mental health. and People have issues with that, but counseling may be something that needs to happen. Before you jump into a, cust a full-out custody battle and you, you have these anger, this anger and this animosity that's still in you for the hurt that your, the, the mother or the, the mother of the parent, the other parent has, has caused you, it may be time to seek some counseling to help you process that. So when you go into the custody side of the case, that, those anger, that anger and that hurt won't seep in and then affect the, the custody dispute um, in, a, in a negative way. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thanks, thanks for breaking that down. Um, the emotions, the feeling, the anger, and how it can be used against someone. You know, I often, you know, talk to friends about anger because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. But OMG, how can that anger be used against you? How about something else? So How about text messages. Oh, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what I was. I'm glad you, you said that. I was. That's where I was headed. Yeah. Um. So, I one of the other things that when clients come to me, and and this hap this has happened to me, and they'll, they'll I'll say, well, listen, is there anything about this case that I need to know? So I'll say, okay, well, what what is the mother of your child? You told me all the bad stuff that she's did, or she's this or that or this that. What is she going to say about you? Oh, she don't, she don't have nothing to say about me. I, I'm doing great. 
I'm like, are you sure? Like, she, there's no no messages out here, no nothing like that. Nope, we're good. I'm like, are you sure? Yes. Okay. When we get in the courtroom, the other lawyer, the other lawyer, drops a stack stack of messages on my desk. Your Honor, may I approach the witness? And they got a stack of text messages this long, where the client has called the mother of of his child every name in the book in that fit of anger. And so I I always tell clients now, listen, they're text messages, emails, voicemails, they're, they're, they're never all the way gone. They can always be retrieved. So you, you don't want to send messages to the, your, the mother of your, the, the other parent in, uh, in anger because those messages will come back to haunt you because a seasoned lawyer knows how to retrieve those messages, even those ones that have been, that you think have been deleted. Nothing in this world of the internet, Kevin, I'm sure you, you know this, you can get everything. You, if you know how to do it, you can pull it back. So, and even if something as simple as screenshots, people will take a picture of what you sent on the phone or they'll take a picture of what you put on Facebook or social media and it's there and it will be used against you in court. It will. And that stuff hurts your case. And I, something as simple as I had a client one time who, and he was upset, he called and he left a voicemail and the voice, he just said, you're, you're, you're so evil, you're just an evil. And he, the way he said it, they played that voicemail in, in court and it really hurt the case because the judge listening to that voicemail, she, she made a judgment about him as, as a type of father he was based off that voicemail. And it wasn't fair. She shouldn't have done that, but it, you know. So I tell clients, when you wanna send a message, you wanna send a message to the, the mother, the other parent, you always want to send that message as if the judge, you send that message to, to the other parent, but you also send that message to the judge. I've gone as far as telling my client, you because there has to be communication between the parents, but it's, it needs to be effective communication. So I've gone as far as before you hit send, send it to me. Send it to me. Let me read it. And then I say, no, nah, you might not want to say it like that. I know, I know what you're saying, but let's work through this. <clears throat> because this is uh, the mother of your child. This is your other, other parent. So there needs to be some effective communication. And, and it, it really hurts sometimes because there's so much history between the parties. And it's very difficult to let that go. But you have to, you cannot send a message that, that expresses, um, it's something as simple as saying, um, I'm, on, I'm, coming to pick, I'm coming to pick Johnny up on Saturday mm -hmm. have him ready. Mm -hmm. Okay. Don't send that. How about you say, hey, I'm, I was thinking about coming to pick Johnny up on Saturday. I was going to plan on taking him to the park. Uh, what do you guys have planned? So they could be a little bit of a dialogue. It's just a little twist, but it has to be, but that type of message, if it gets in front of the judge, is more uh, collaborative. It shows your ability to be more co-parenting as opposed to just calling shots. And you can, you can feel the heat. You can feel the heat coming off some of those messages sometimes, just, just reading. And a lot of times, uh, dads, they, they cannot see it because they're so close up on it. And they're like, what's wrong with this? I'm like, let's just rework it. It's okay. Let's rework it. And I, I find myself a lot of times just, just retyping it. Like, okay, no, how about this? Send it this way. <laughs> um, but yeah, anything that you think is, is private, it might not be so private when you're in the custody, custody battle. So you need to write those messages as if you're seeing 
the judge is going to see it, you know. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Th- you know, thank you for walking us through the healthy communication segment, right? I, I love the way you described, you know, changing the vocabulary. Yes. You know, things like, you know, instead of baby mom, the mother of my child. Right. Instead of my son, our son. And I like the way you say, hey, anybody could read those. Even the child one day may read those messages. Right. Right. <coughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. So, so let's, let's, let's shift from um, communication to initiative and involvement. Tell me about this. So children, go ahead. Yeah. So one thing that I've, I've seen is that, and this is, I guess, a little bit controversial, but we are mm-hmm. all family. I'm just going to, these are my, these are my thoughts. These are, this is okay. my opinion. So I feel like in my, in my, I'm a father, I'm a father of three. Um, and I learned this firsthand with my baby girl, my baby, baby girl. She was born 20 at 27 weeks, 27 weeks, very premature. I could fit her in the palm of my hand. Like her little legs were hanging out about, about where my watch is. I mean, she was just so small. And through that experience, um, she had to spend a lot of time. My wife was on bed rest for a good portion of her the pregnancy. And she um, was, at, when she was delivered, she had to, my wife, my daughter had to stay at the hospital. And we had two other children. So my wife spent a bulk of the time at the hospital with our baby girl, like getting her ready to come home. So when she got home, when she was, thank God she got home and she was healthy and she's thriving. But in those early moments, my, my wife and my daughter spent so much time together. And I kid, I kid, but I was kind of serious. I told my wife, like, as she got older, my baby girl, she ain't fooled with me. She fooled, she wanted her mama. She wanted her mama. And I think it, it, it hurt me. I was in the household, but I'm like, come on, be with she's like, ah, I love my mama. So I said all that to say that there is a physical connection that mothers and their children and their children that, 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 that lived inside of them. And that they pushed out into the world, they actually had to cut the cord. There was a physical connection between the two. Now, that physical connection that the mother and the child had, that doesn't mean that it's a better or stronger. It's just they had, I would say, like I say, they had a, a little bit of a leg up because of that birthing process. So when the child gets here to the earth, we as fathers... We have to build that connection. And you, if you've ever built anything, it takes work. It takes work. It takes time. It doesn't, you know, say I'm going to build a house and you just sit. It's not going to build itself. There's work that you have to do. So guess what I had to do when my baby girl came home? I had to change them diapers. I had to feed her. I had to like my wife, let me, let me get up. Let me. Let me feed her. Let me, you know, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to get it, I'm trying to get in where I fit in. I'm trying to get that time. I'm trying to get that time with my baby girl. And so I said all of that to say that the biggest, one of the biggest problems that I see with, with, with my clients sometimes is that they fall back into what society has said fathers are supposed to be. Like mom, that's mom, they let mom. Uh, pick the children up from school. They let mom make the make the lunches. They let mom change the diapers. They let mom take the kids to the to the doctor. These are things that we as fathers have to be a part of, especially in a custody situation. If you're saying that you want you want to spend time, you want this equal amount of excuse me, you want equal amount of time with your child, you have to show the court that that that's what you've been doing. You've been doing this all along. And so it's never too late to start, but I always say start as early as you can. Don't wait and let 
a month go by, the child was born, and it's a month later and you haven't seen the child, two months, three months. Well, she won't let me. Well, if she won't, if, if and I, I tell my wife this all the time, if and this is not, she's probably watching, this is not our, our testimony, but if she were to tell me I could not see either one of them children, it's going to be, if we're going we're gonna to do something, we're going to make, I'm going to see them children, you know? So I'm, I'm not trying to shame fathers. What I'm saying is that we have to push. When you get that resistance, well, I want to come by and see. No, you can't come by and see him today. Well, no, you, you know what you got to do? You got to keep trying. You got to keep trying. Don't let that time go by because that time that you're missing with your child, you can't make that up. You can't make that up. And so I think fathers, they get, and it's, it's hard. I think it's, it's heart-wrenching. I've sat with fathers and they have literally cried tears behind not being able to spend time with their children. And I, and I feel for them. But you know what I tell them? You got to keep going. You have to keep, don't give up. Don't give up. This is too important for you to say, well, I'll just wait till, till the child gets 16 and then we'll build a relationship. No, no, it's too important. So I think um, we have to build that connection. Um, we cannot just sit back and let um, the mothers take the front in all of these things. You know, we need to know the dads need to know who is the baby's doctor. The dads need to know, have they been up to date on their shot? Has the baby had his, all their shots on the right time? Who's the baby's dentist? Like, you know, we have to be a part of that. We can't let society tell us that that's, been, that's woman's work. Or that's the mother's work. No, it's, it's parents' work. It's parents' work. Because that's, that shows that you have a strong desire to build that connection with the child. And it's not just about want to be a, a weekend dad, you know. That's not what I'm trying to do, Your Honor. I'm trying, I want to be a part of our of our child's life. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I think on that. Um, and then some things the dads may need to do. Um, there are if you're in, in a custody dispute and you're you want to show the court that you are serious about it. Uh, parenting class. They have lots of different parenting classes out here. And it's like, oh, I don't want to go and sit and let somebody tell me how to be a parent. It's not about that. It's about showing the court that you are dedicated and you are serious about this. If you have to go and sit in that class and they give you that certificate, that's fine. But you bring that certificate to your lawyer. And when we're in court, I can, when you're on the witness stand, I can ask you, well, what steps have you taken to make sure that you're doing everything that you can to be the best father that you can be? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Attorney Jones. You know, I went to this parenting class and they talked they talked about this and this and that. And the judges are like, yeah, okay. He he gets it. He gets it that this connection, there is a there is a connection that fathers have with children. I, I'm, I'm not saying that this, there's not one there. But that connection needs to be cultivated. That connection needs to be built. And you build it with time and effort. Um, and it's not just every other weekend type deal. Awesome, awesome. Initiative and involvement. Building relationships, building that connection, parenting classes. Thanks for breaking it down for us. Now let's switch to the topic that, you know, a lot of people think, you know, you often don't hear the custody conversation because it's typically more child support, child support, child support. So let's go ahead and talk about child support. Yeah. You say don't waste your time. Tell us what that means. Um, or don't waste time. I'm sorry. Right. Don't waste time. Like, don't wait. Don't allow fear. Don't allow fear of being put on child support. Keep you from filing for custody. Um, because guess what? You can wait and, and try to not make waves and play nice and, and, and you're not seeing your, ch your child like you should because you, 
are trying to go with, with what mom said because you feel like, well, if I file for custody, then she's going to file for child support. Guess what? She can file for child support anyway. And that means you've wasted all of that time. You waited five years trying to keep her from filing for child support. And then she files for child support anyway. And then you got five years of back child support that you still got to pay. So don't allow that time to go by because you're trying to keep peace so she won't file for child support. Because what happens is you're waiting around trying to keep her from filing for child support. But then when you do finally file for custody, judges like to look at what's been going on over the last year, two, three years. And if the judge might say, well, we're just going to keep the status quo. You've been seeing a child every other weekend. We're going to let you still keep the child, seeing the child every other weekend. They want to keep the status quo. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so you've established a pattern. You've established a pattern of seeing a child every other weekend for three years. And now you're filing for custody saying you want to see the child every other, one week with you, one week with mom. You've allowed too much time to go by. All behind. It could be the reason that you said, well, I just want to pay child support. But Child support is not something that can be avoided. And it definitely shouldn't be avoided at the expense of losing time with your, with your child. Um, every day that you wait is another day that you won't be able to spend time with, with your child. Um, now, it's not, <clears throat> it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate for uh, a parent to withhold visitation because a parent is not paying child support. It's not, that's not appropriate. And if you get in, in a custody situation, I've, I've called parents out in front of the judge on that. When you withholding the child, well, he wasn't paying child support. So that means you were not going to let him see the child because he was not paying child support. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And that definitely torpedoes the other parent's case because it's not appropriate. Now, the other side is true as well. It's not appropriate to not pay child support because the other parent is not letting you see the child. So child support cannot be a reason that one parent withholds visitation. And on the, the opposite, um, not paying child support, you cannot say, well, I'm not going to pay child support because she's not letting me see the child because who's suffering there? In both of those situations, who's suffering? The child. And in North Carolina, judges operate off the what's in the best interest of the child standard. So when you are withholding visitation, the judge is going to say, you don't have the best interest of the child in mind. And when you're withholding child support, because, well, if I pay child support, she gonna go to Miami with her friends or she gonna put rims on her car or she gonna you know, go buy lobster or she gonna go buy some crab legs with my child support. If you're withholding child support because you're afraid of what she's gonna do with that money, the judge is gonna look at you as if you don't have the best interest of the child at, at heart. So that's how the child support piece is, is separate, but it's connected. The other way child support is connected is that even though it's not appropriate for the for the other parent to withhold child to withhold visitation because you're not paying, but when you get on the witness stand and that other lawyer can start asking you, well, you want to you have the you you love your child mm -hmm. and you want to spend time with the child. Yes, yes, I love my child. I want to spend time with child. And you work every day, don't you? Yeah, I work every day. Um, but you haven't sent any, you didn't send any child support this month, did you? No. You didn't see any child support last month, did you? No. You ain't spent. So you see where I'm going? Like you can end up sitting on that witness stand, looking like, uh, I'm saying I love my child and I want the best for my child, but at the same time, I'm not supporting. So the two, they're separate, but they go hand in hand as well. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, uh, so the, a lot of times, dads are saying, well. Well, why should I have to pay child support? Um, she should just take care of the child when the child is with her. 
She takes care of the child when the child's with her. And then I take care of the child when the child is with me. So that's that's some of the one of the, the common things that I hear. But what I try to talk counsel dads on is, is think about this. When the child, if you and the mother, if you and the mother were together, the way that the child support works in North Carolina, the, the court looks at what's called a shared income model. So if I made a dollar and my wife makes 50 cents, the child has access, access to a dollar and 50 cents. The child doesn't just have access to my dollar or doesn't just have access to the mom's 50 cents. The child is supposed to have access to the whole dollar and 50 cents because it's not my child or your child, it's our child. We have a, a, a joint responsibility to care for the child. That means when the child is with me, I'm, I'm taking care of air conditioning, electricity and food and all these other things. But when the child is with mom, I'm, I'm taking care of that too because it's our child and, and vice versa. So I try to, it's, it's a hard needle to thread sometimes because you know we all understand how money Money can, when you start dealing with, with money, people start getting a lot of emotions attached to it. But we really have to work through that. And that's that's a, a bitter pill to swallow sometimes, but it's a reality. And, and that's the hard, one of the hard parts of my job too is um, getting clients to understand that way, the way you're personally looking at it may not be the way the judge is looking at it. And you're allowing the judge the judge is going to be the one who ultimately determines this custody thing. And so we kind of have to change our frame of reference, change our way of thinking and how we, we look at some of these things. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Attorney Jones, on breaking down child support. Man, you just made it plain. Let's talk about one more section, you know, as we talk about, you know, custody, child support. How about setting boundaries? Tell us how, why setting boundaries is important. Setting boundaries comes into play when we want to make sure that the judge doesn't think that dad needs other people to help him take care of the child. And by that, I mean, we want to make sure that dad, like the judge doesn't think that, that dad needs grandma, auntie, girlfriend to be the ones that are actually he's asking for custody but we need to make sure that the judge understands that no I'm asked for custody and I'm going to be the one who is the predominant uh caregiver for the child and a lot of times like well what you know I could I should be able I have a new friend in my life I she should be able to help out yes helping out is one thing but I've had situations where I've actually had to tell the the new girlfriend hey you you need to let, let him call me you know um hey uh mom um you might not be need to be the one who goes to pick up go to meet up at the pickup to pick up the child or or new girlfriend new girlfriend you don't need to meet at the mcdonald's to pick up the child because that's you're asking for a dispute so when i say setting boundaries I want to make sure that when we go into court, that my client understands that the judge is looking at you and what you are going to be able to do. It's okay to have help, but it's not okay to have that help take over. And so when I say setting boundaries, we want to make sure that you have, the, I want to make sure that my dads have really thought about what custody is going to look like for them in their household. And who's going to be responsible for picking the child up from school, helping the child with the homework, giving the child a bath at night, like going through a full out schedule. And like I said, it's okay to have help, but you can't allow that help to be the ones who are actually the driving force. You know, you can't be the, the help, the ones that are actually driving the car. The help, our help is there to assist. Um, so there's a fine line between helping and taking over. And so that's why it's important to really make sure that those boundaries are set early on. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You know, 
um, if, if you would think about if there's anything else you want to mention, I had a Q&A um, session, but I'm not going to do that because what I want to do is pivot and talk about another topic that we have on the agenda. Is, is it okay if we talk about the, the, the traffic stop? Yes, it was one more okay. thing that, I, that was on okay. my mind and I had it in my notes and I wanted to come back to it before we switched gears. Yeah, go ahead and do um, that. It was about the, the school involvement okay uh, or being involved i think that it's important for dads early on you know one of the people who really can be helpful in these custody cases are teachers teachers um school administrators um if they see your face like you i want i tell my dads how's your child doing in in his art class or in his math class like who is who's the homeroom teacher like you need to get to know these people, get to know these folks, because what that does is that it sets a foundation for when we get in court, the judge knows that you're on top of it. You're not just allowing mom to do all the school stuff and you just, you know, you just provide the money. No, you're interested in school as well. And I've actually had a case where it was, it was very sad because I was representing a parent and it was actually a godparent who was trying to get custody of the child. It was a godparent trying to get custody of, of the child. And the other attorney, they brought in a teacher. They brought in the, the, uh, the kindergarten teacher. And when the kindergarten teacher got on the witness stand, she was testifying about how the child was doing in school and this and that and this and that. And she was asking, well, do you know the child's mother? And the kindergarten teacher was like, well, I don't know the mother, but I know the godmother. And this child was in kindergarten. So that means that my client hadn't spent any time at the school, any kind of connection with the teacher at all. The only connection that the teacher and the school had was with the, with the, the godmother. And so that, that really hurt hurt the case. And so that's one of those situations where I always remember, I always remember to tell clients, you have to get down to that school. You have to send emails. You have to know what's going on because not only just for court, but it's important for the child to know that you care about the education. But on the, on the court side, it really shows a little something like that can really help a father and go a long way if the father's on top of the school and what's going on down here at the school. So that was just one thing I, I, I had to get that out because I, that's awesome. something that, that's e not easy, but that's something that a, a, a proactive step that dads can take to kind of help build that rapport, build that relationship um, and show that they're caring about the child. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. We're going to skip discussion just because um, the uniqueness of this session. But what we're going to do instead of discussion, we got a surprise topic. We got a surprise topic that Attorney Jones also uh, represents in the state of North Carolina. And that topic we would like to call surviving, staying alive during a traffic stop. And the topic is five strategies to survive a traffic stop. So I wanna start with a scenario. So let's say, you know, there's this um, young man who, is in pre-law school. He likes to drive fast. And occasionally, if he gets pulled over, he's a smart kid. He likes to debate, you know, law with the police officers. Attorney Jones, tell us why that may or may not be a good idea. Well, it's, it's not a good idea. <laughs> And, here, and here's why. One reason why is we all have rights. We hear this all the time. I have my rights. I know my rights. Constitutional right, First Amendment. I'm rights and rights, rights, rights. I hear that all the time. You didn't read my rights, so my case should be dismissed. The reality is we do have rights. We have constitutional rights. We have um, uh, our our. Um, protections, constitutional protections, constitutional rights. But rights are to be argued in court and not on the side of the road. 
when the police pull you over and they may pull you over for a wrong, they shouldn't be, they're driving while black. Um, they pull you over because some pretext, they, they, they just, they, they're saying that your tent was too dark, but you don't even have tent on your car. But they pull you over for a wrong reason that violates you, legitimately violates your constitutional rights. But on the side of the road is not the time to make your eloquent argument about your um, Fourth Amendment rights being violated um, because it's an unlawful stop. Um, this is a, a, a funny story that happened to uh, attorney and I, it was three attorneys in the car, uh, two black attorneys, I being one of them, I was driving. And then there was another attorney on the side in, in the front, at front passenger seat, and then a, another attorney in the, in the back seat. But the attorney in the back seat is a, is a white attorney, young white attorney. So we were fresh out of law school, we were at a conference. And we went to a karaoke bar and I was a designated driver, so I didn't have any drinks. But my two, my passengers, they had a few drinks. So we we're coming back from, from the bar and we got lost. And we're driving slow through a neighborhood in Wilmington. We're in Wilmington, North Carolina. We're driving slow through a neighborhood. And I noticed the police got behind us. And when the police got behind us, you know, we all kind of know I'm getting ready to get pulled over. You get that feeling, like we're ready to get pulled over. So I told my passenger, who's African-American, I said, yo, I, we about to get pulled over. And so he immediately turned the music down. He popped the, um, the glove box, pulled out the, the rental car information. And my passenger in the back seat, when I said, we about to get pulled over, he said, get pulled over, pulled over for what? You haven't done anything. Now he had a few, he had a few drinks, but he was, moving all around in the back seat, like looking, looking over his shoulder. I was like, we, I was just 10 and two, told my, we both told him at the same time, almost in sync, like, hey, just calm down. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> but he was like, this is, this is ridiculous. I'm like, he didn't understand. <laughs> he didn't understand, but we got pulled over. Cop came up, uh, you guys been drinking tonight? I said, no, I haven't been drinking. But these two guys have, trying to make a little joke, license and registration. I give it to him, he gone back. And the whole time, we're still trying to calm our backseat passenger down, our white, our white brother, because he just couldn't understand why I'm, you need to tell him. We both like, it's not the time, it'll be okay, and we're fine. So he came back, gave us, gave my information back, and we were lost. I told him we were lost. You think he gave me directions on how to get back to the hotel? No, he just left. So I said that to say that I could have flexed a little bit because I was an attorney at the time. I could have said, you know, uh, why'd you stop me? You didn't have probable cause to stop me. I could have got into that because I had the knowledge, but I made the calculation that it's not, this is not the form for that. You know, now had things escalated and we've got arrested or charged or whatever, something went that way, we would have had ammunition to fight in court because this, we could have argued that this, it was a bad stop. But had I got out and got out of character and started, you know, trying to argue my points with the officer on the side of the road, I could have lost some of that valuable ground that, that moral high ground or that high ground that I had, had I stooped down to where he was and started arguing on the side of the road. So the point is arguing on the side of the road, your constitutional rights could very well make it harder on, for your lawyer to use those same arguments in court. You know, everything is being recorded now. And so you just don't want to give them a reason to discredit your argument in court. And so that, that's why I say uh, rights, while they are true and you do have them, there's an appropriate place to argue, argue those rights in the right form. Awesome, awesome. So, so what do you do when the police, you know, what, ask to search your car? So that's number two. Another way to, sought to, to survive a traffic stop, and this may be a little controversial, but 
stick with me on this. The police ask to search your car. You say, no, you may not search my car. And you're like, well, how's that helping me survive a traffic stop? Well, you don't want to invite further interaction with the police than you have to. So if I'm in my car and the police ask, hey, uh, I think I want to, can you step out? I want to search your car. I don't, I do not give you permission to search my car. Well, the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution, that's one of those rights that you have that, you know, you are free to be, you are, you have the right to be free from what's called unreasonable search and seizure. Like they just can't just search your car because they want to search your car. Unless, what? You give them permission. You give them permission to search your car. You have invited them into your vehicle to, to go through and do whatever. So you can always politely say, no, you can't search my car. Um, by saying no, you're giving your lawyer ammunition to argue in court. But if you say yes, you can search and they get in that car and then they find something or they they find something. I just be nice. Say they find something or they drop something in your car. They find something in your car. <laughs> you said you're like, well, how did that get in? That's not mine. Well, we found it in your car. Put your hands behind your back. And then it kind of goes from there. So that's when you can always politely say no. And then people like. And my mother is probably on here. She probably said, well, I ain't got nothing in my car. They can search my car. You don't know what's in your car. You, If you let anybody, if you've let anybody ride in your car over the last, you had any passengers in your car over the last week, you don't know what's in your car. You don't know what's under your seat. I mean, we've all have taken our car to the car wash or to the, to the vacuum place and you're in there vacuuming and you find, you find all kinds of stuff in the car. You're like, well, how did this get here? You know, when did I, when did I, uh, you find a screw? Like, what? why is a screw in, in my back seat? You know, like, or a French fry, or, you know, uh, I don't even go to McDonald's. Like, why is a McDonald's fry in my back seat? So the point being, you don't know what's in your car. I, it's just not worth it. So what happens is <clears throat> in the heat of the moment, um, fear, fear takes over. Police say, well, I want to search your car. Um, and he said, no, I don't want you to search my car. Well, if you don't let me search the car, I'm going to call the dogs. We're going to have to get the dogs here. And you're going to be sitting here on the side of the road. And, you know, well, we're just going to have to be sitting here. Officer, I, but you don't, I'm not giving you permission to search my car. It's as simple as that. You do not have to give the police permission to search your car. You do not. But that I'm not saying you need to get into a back and forth. No, you can't search my car. That's against my rights. Such and such. It's as simple as, no, I did not give you permission to search my car. Well, we're going to get the dogs. I did not give you permission to search my car. Because at that point, well, you sure you don't want, we can just search it. No, we, you know, if the dogs come and, and they say they found, we're going to get in there. We're going to tear your car up. Okay. Well, I'm not giving you permission to search my car. And if they get in there and tear the car up, you can always fall back that I did not give them permission to search your car. If you give them permission to search the car and they go through and they tear it up to pieces, it's harder to make the argument that they shouldn't have been in there because you gave them permission to do that. So I say one strategy for another strategy for surviving the traffic stop is don't invite the police, don't invite yourself to have more interaction with the police than you need to. And by that, you can always say, no, you can't search my car. So that's, awesome. that's two. Awesome, how about number three? Number three is close to number one. I was close to number the, the, the not searching, but you, um, you have the right to remain silent. So you can exercise that right. You don't have to give the police more information than what's absolutely necessary. 
that comes from the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment is the right. You don't have you don't have to incriminate yourself. And people incriminate themselves by just talking. So you can you can. And a lot of times this is where fear comes in as well. People get nervous and they just start blurting out stuff and just talking, 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 talking. And they feel like you can talk, they can talk themselves out of being arrested. Because, and I, it's been my experience that nine times out of 10, the police already know what they want to do. They want to arrest you. And so if they already have it in their mind that they're going to arrest you, it's nothing that you can say that can talk you out of being arrested. Now, the opposite is true. You can talk yourself into being arrested. So sometimes it's best to just remain silent. And they like, well, well, I'm going, I'm put you, come on, sir, I'm put your hands on your back. Well, why you gotta arrest me? Well, I didn't do anything. Well, what? And then they, on top of what, then they got a, a resistant charge they're trying to put on top of that because it's, you're trying to talk yourself out of, they're getting ready to put the handcuffs on you. The handcuffs are coming on. Don't give them more ammunition by talking, talking it, talking it out. Because you think you are talking yourself out of the situation, but you're really giving them more and you're getting yourself more involved. You know, there's so many times where clients think that they're that have said something that seems innocent. Let's say, for example, police come up to the car and they're like, oh, yeah, so well. Uh, where you coming from? Oh, me and my friend, we went to the mall and then we went went to our other friend's house over on, on Elm Street. And oh, okay, you coming from Elm Street? Okay, all right. Step out of the car. We just had a robbery over on Elm Street. You fit the description. Put your hands behind your back. Now, they may have already getting ready to arrest you because they, they ran a tag and they know this car was on Elm Street. They got an idea that this car was on Elm Street. But when they ask you something simple as, where are you coming from? And you mentioned Elm Street, what did you do? You helped confirm the suspicion that they already had. So a better response is, where are you coming from? Your uh, officer, I politely declined to answer that. All right, step out of the car, smart, and we're gonna put your hands behind your back. We're going to take you to jail, okay? But now they take you to jail. All they have is evidence that this car may have been on Elm Street. They don't have your statement that you were on Elm Street, you know? So I say another, um, another step for surviving traffic stop is remain, exercise that right to remain silent. Exercise that right. Um, and this is the fourth one is, is I think is, it may sound silly or simple, but we gotta keep our cars, we gotta keep our cars in compliance. And by that, I mean, everybody keep their car inspected, keep your tags, keep your tags up to date. Now, me and my, my sister-in-law, we had a spirited debate about this because I don't, want it, I don't want anybody out here to think that I'm saying that not keeping your car inspected or keep your taillight being broken is a reason for the police to kill you. I'm not saying that. But the topic, this topic is about surviving a traffic stop. One way to best survive a traffic stop is to avoid being involved with the police at all, especially in this climate. We don't want to invite them to us. And it's something as simple as client had an expired inspection sticker, police pull them over for the expired inspection sticker. Hey, uh, your, your sticker is out. Um, you know, oh, you need to get that fixed. Okay, yeah, I'll get that fixed. Um, I smell uh, I smell a little marijuana coming from your car. Anybody been smoking marijuana? Well, no, nobody's smoking marijuana. You mind if I search? Uh, uh, yeah, you can search. And it just kind of snowballs from there. You know, one little thing can lead to something else, lead to something else, lead to something else. So when I say keep the car in compliance, let's check the um the the those tags. Let's make sure those tags are, are straight. Let's make sure our driver's license is is not suspended. Let's let's make sure that we're on point. And again, all of this gives your lawyer ammunition in court. 
that if they try to trump up some charges against you, you can always come at. Nope, his license was good. His tag was not expired. His window tenant tent was not too dark. You were just trying to stop a black man. You know, so those are some of the, the things. And the last thing, and this is another point that um, my family and I, we, we battled over a little bit. We have to acknowledge that this, the fear, a lot of law enforcement officers, there is an element of fear. I've spoken with them and they, they, they talk about this fear of not coming home this fear of pulling over a car and not and not knowing if this is going to be the last car that they pull over. And that's from their lens. But from our lens, or I should say from my lens, when I'm pulled over and I'm sitting, waiting for the officer to come up to the car, and I see him creeping up to the car with his gun, with his hand on his gun, that's fear for me. Now I'm afraid that you're going to shoot me. So there's fear on both sides and that fear can get elevated very quickly. And I think for, we have to at least begin to have this conversation with our, with our children, with our sons, amongst each other, our daughters, to, to know that, that that fear element is real for them and for us. And, we, and anytime you have fear in the room, bad things can happen fairly quickly. Now, I understand that the fear that a lot of officers say they have is, I, I could say it's an irrational fear, like it's a fear of minorities, a fear of black people, because we've seen, we've all seen the videos where some people get a little less, they get a little more rope, you know, they pulling out machetes and swinging it and, and the officers are kind of backing up, backing up. But if we pull out a pen too fast, we get shot, you know, you get a full clip unloaded in us. So that is a real thing. So, and I say we have to acknowledge it and address it with our with our sons and daughters, and young people when they're out here driving, like, listen, at least have that conversation ahead of time and try to put yourself in that officer's shoes. And we hope that we can, um, we're getting that same with all this talk about police reform, we hope that they're getting this training as well. Like, look, you need to put yourself in the, the person that you're approaching shoes as well, officer. Um, it's, that's a, some fear on both sides that needs to be acknowledged and addressed. So those are some of the, the five points that I wanted to talk about, specifically about surviving the traffic stop. Awesome, awesome. Attorney Kevin Jones, thank you, brother, for being here tonight. Thank you for breaking it down, talking about custody. Thank you for the surprise discussion on surviving a traffic shop. Stop. If anybody wants to um, you know, follow with this brother, all you gotta do is hit Google, Attorney Kevin and Jones. And I just wanna thank you all for being here tonight. As you know, I tend to hang around, play a little music, and it helps me unwind for the evening. But thank everyone for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.